It's raining income for retirees. What should you do with all this extra yield? New drugs are driving a weight loss trend. How can investors make money? And with an impressive quarter behind it, Salesforce remains a top pick. We'll tell you why. This is Investing Insights. Welcome to Investing Insights. I'm your host, Ruth Saldana. Let's get started with a look at your Morningstar headlines. Salesforce posted an impressive quarter. The cloud-based software company's revenue and profits came in ahead of Morningstar's expectations. First quarter revenue grew 11% year-over-year to $8.25 billion. Salesforce's IT automation platform MuleSoft, international orders, and a more buoyant core business drove the strong performance. Management also noted most cloud products saw year-over-year growth of at least 50% in annual recurring revenue. The sales tied to subscriptions or long-term contracts tend to be more reliable. However, Salesforce's professional services struggled and the overall demand remains weak. Profitability is a bright spot. The analyst is predicting them to rise higher next year despite artificial intelligence investments. Morningstar is sticking with its $245 estimate for Salesforce shares. The stock remains a top pick. Weakening demand for PCs is weighing on HP. The tech company's fiscal second quarter revenue fell 22% year-over-year. Competitors are pressuring HP on price, and a lot of its unsold goods are piling up on the shelves of resellers. Macroeconomic headwinds are still a concern, but HP believes that it is at a turning point. It plans to reduce inventory backlog, watch costs, and take advantage of better seasonal buying patterns to bolster its second-half results. Management predicts improved sales in the third quarter. The firm has narrowed its full-year earnings per share range to $3.3 to $3.5. Morningstar thinks these targets are achievable, but remains cautious of macroeconomic factors affecting demand. The analyst is maintaining his estimate of HP's stock worth of $30 a share. Shares currently appear fairly valued. Macy's came up short of sales expectations in the first quarter. Weather and economic issues, along with uneven consumer spending, hurt apparel demand. The retailer reported an 8% dip in sales, landing below Morningstar's forecast. Despite the sales miss, gross margins rose and beat expectations. That shows progress in managing inventory and costs, although Morningstar thinks Macy's needs more work in this area. Morningstar anticipates stronger results in the second half of the year. Our analyst plans to slightly trim the $27 estimate of Macy's stock, but we still consider the shares undervalued. There's a lot of conversation on social media and elsewhere about the weight loss drug trend. The chatter has been around semaglutide, sold under brand names like Wegovy or Ozempic. But who is making them? And can you make money by buying the manufacturers of these hot drugs? Karen Anderson is a biotechnology strategist for Morningstar Research Services, and she just published a report about these drugs. She's here today to talk about it. Karen, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's start with the basics. Why is everyone talking about these drugs? We've been in a situation for the past couple of decades where there just really haven't been a lot of good treatments. I mean, there's a history with obesity uh, drug therapies of, uh, you know, side effects um, that have taken drugs off the market. There have been drugs that have failed while still even in clinical trials. And then the drugs that were on the market 
we're only leading to something like 5% weight loss, which is not really a significant enough level to really make a difference, I don't think, in patients' lives. So when we started seeing kind of this next generation of drugs getting to market, and so this would be, for example, Novo Nordisk Wegovi approved in 2021, 15% average weight loss uh, is much more significant for patients. And so I think with more than 40% of Americans falling into the category of uh, being obese, um, I think that's going to be a really just a significant uh, driver of, of patients starting to take these therapies. And one other thing is that I think that this could even become, um, there could be even more buzz around this category if that's even possible. <laughs> uh, if, if the data that uh, Novo Nordisk is expecting for Wegovy for cardiovascular outcomes is positive. So that data is, could be coming any day now. Uh, and they're going to be seeing if patients taking Wegovy actually see lower rates of heart attacks and strokes. And so if that's true, then I think that'll really solidify the case that some patients need this sort of therapy. It's not, it's not a cosmetic thing. It's, it's more of a, a medical issue where these drugs can really help. Now, you cover biotechnology and the companies that innovate in the space. In fact, in the past, you've also covered the race for the COVID-19 vaccines. What can you tell us about some of the front runners in this space? Are there any clear favorites at this point? Yeah, sure. So there really are two front runners. So I mentioned Novo Nordisk. Uh, they did just get Wagovi approved. Uh, they've actually been an obesity uh, drug market player for years. Um, they have an older drug called Sexenda that's still on the market, but it doesn't work quite as well, but it's been a leading drug in about a $2 billion obesity market. Uh, but we think with Wigovi, we think Novo is going to grow to uh, $6 billion in obesity sales just in 2023 and eventually lead to uh, $20 billion in annual peak sales in obesity. Uh, uh, Eli Lilly is the other company that is really one of the, uh, the key players here. Uh, they have a drug called Munjaro that is approved in diabetes uh, and likely to get approval in obesity by the end of the year. Weight loss with, uh, with Munjaro looks even better, potentially 20% uh, weight loss. Uh, and so we think sales of that could even be stronger than what Novo Nordisk is going to see with Wagovi. Uh, both of these companies also have very strong pipelines that I think will keep them relevant um, in the long term. Uh, so eventually, hopefully seeing weight loss closer to uh, 25%, which is approaching the levels that we've seen historically with uh, more aggressive therapies, things like uh, bariatric surgery. Some of these stocks like Pfizer, for example, have been underperforming for a while now. Why is that? Yeah, so Pfizer specifically, um, they're a company that they're a little bit late to the game in obesity relative to Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly. Uh, they have a couple of oral obesity drugs that they're trying to pick from, and one of these will likely move into the final stages of clinical trials next year. So they're kind of in a position where they, they might reach the market by around 2026, a little bit delayed. Uh, I think the shares of Pfizer, though, it's a much more diversified company. The shares are impacted by a lot of different things. And I think specifically this year, one of the reasons why they're underperforming is because of the, the huge drop in uh, COVID vaccine sales and demand as well. What are some of the risks that we are facing with these medications? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, given all of the enthusiasm over their efficacy. Um, and the obesity space um, historically has had 
a bit of a checkered past when it comes to drugs. You know, we had the, the Fen-Fen issue with uh, damage to heart valves back in the 90s. Uh, there have been other drugs since then that have had cardiovascular problems or even um, uh, cancer risks. And so this is definitely an area that we're watching. Uh, the encouraging news is that Ozempic and uh, Wegovi, which is basically this single active ingredient from Novo Nordisk, it's been on the market as a diabetes therapy uh, for the past several years. Uh, so patients are taking this chronically and there haven't been any red flags coming up in terms of serious safety issues. The main issue has been tolerability. So a lot of patients do have issues with things like uh, nausea or uh, diarrhea, uh, but, but not to the level typically you know, where it's considered just a serious side effect. Um, I think that with Munjaro, Lily's drug, it's a li operates in a little bit of a different way and it hasn't been on the market as long. So even though there hasn't been anything concerning uh, bubbling up yet, uh, that's definitely something that we would watch as, as more and more patients are interested in taking it. Uh, but one of the bigger uh, risks, um, actually that's uh, still not sure how this is gonna play out, is what about the risk of regaining weight? Uh, so it seems so far from what we've seen that if patients do stop taking therapy, one, maybe say once they achieve their goal weight, uh, they're very likely to regain the weight. And so I think we're going to see uh, a lot more information about uh, whether patients could should continue taking this chronically, whether their uh, insurance companies are willing to pay for it chronically, and uh, potentially, hopefully, some good news uh, on the cardiovascular benefit front that should further support uh, being able to use these uh, drugs chronically if needed. Well, with all that in mind, what is your favorite stock pick in this space and why? Yeah, so actually one of my favorite names uh, is actually Amgen. So Novo Nordisk and Lilly, yes, they're the leaders in the space, but uh, even assigning them about 75% of a potential $60 billion obesity market by 2030, we're still not getting a forecast for free cash flows uh, that's getting us to a price that's that's above where it's trading. So they actually do look uh, a little bit overvalued at recent prices. Uh, Amgen, on the other hand, is a company that has had some, uh, there have been some uncertainties recently regarding a bigger acquisition that they're doing uh, of Horizon Therapeutics. Uh, they've also faced some pricing pressure for some of their uh, existing drugs that they're marketing. So uh, it's actually an opportunity to get exposure to a company that has an obesity drug in development at a fairly decent price. Uh, their drug, there isn't much data on it. It's in a mid-stage study right now, but it looks like it could be differentiated. So far, the data are showing efficacy that looks similar to Wegovi uh, over only a short three-month period, actually. And, uh, and the drug is moving into, uh, it's in currently in phase two trials and could be administered as infrequently as once every quarter. So there could be some potential for differentiation from the leaders there. Thank you so much for being here today, Karen. Yeah, sure. Thank you. For the first time in a very long time, thanks to higher interest rates, bond yields are proving attractive. What does this mean for retirees who want income? To talk about cash yields, bond yields, and yes, dividend stocks, Morningstar Inc.'s Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, sat down with the Director of Content, Susan Jubinski. Here's what they had to say. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks to higher interest rates, a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds is once again offering a reasonable yield. Joining me to discuss what that means in practice for retirees using a bucket strategy for their retirement income 
is Christine Benz. She's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Nice to see you today, Christine. Hi, Susan. Great to see you. So let's talk about the prevailing interest rate environment. And, you know, if someone has that sort of balanced 60-40 portfolio, what kind of income is that generating and throwing off today? Well, it's gotten much better due mainly to the fixed income piece. So if we look at a very plain vanilla U.S. stock bond portfolio today, it's yielding about 2.7%. If we look at my minimalist bucket portfolio, which would just include a dash of cash, as well as a dash of international equities, you can nudge that up to closer to 3%, like 2.9% for a portfolio that's slightly more diversified. So that is miles ahead of where we were a couple of years ago, where you were lucky to ring like 2% from your balanced portfolio. Right. So uh, what do you suggest investors do with this sort of now higher income distributions they're receiving? Should they be reinvesting those or should they be spending them? Well, I like the idea of retirees coming into the process with a formulated strategy about how they will how they will deal with this. So really there are two ways to think about it and you know if I'm thinking about the bucket portfolios mm-hmm. that I often talk about you could either maintain what, what I think of as kind of a pure total return strategy, where you're reinvesting all of your income and dividend distributions right back into the portfolio. And then periodically, you're taking a look at whether your portfolio needs rebalancing. So, you know, in a period like 2019 through 2021, for example, most portfolios had appreciated equity holdings that retirees mm-hmm. could use to fund their cash flow needs. So that would be sort of the pure total return approach. I think if we were to ask our our more academic colleagues around mm-hmm. here, that's probably what they would recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, another strategy, though, that you could use is to pull those income distributions that are coming off of your stock and bond holdings and just have them spilled over into your cash bucket if you're using this bucket strategy. Mm -hmm. You've got a cash bucket that you're spending from on an ongoing basis. Your portfolio's income distributions will help refill that cash bucket as you're spending from it. So that's an alternative method if you needed additional sources of cash flow, you could use rebalancing to help make up the difference. So, you know, if you think about that 60-40 or sort of uh, minimalist bucket portfolio, that's getting you about three-fourths of the way to like a Mm -hmm. 4% portfolio Mm -hmm. withdrawal with that 3% organic yield. So that's another strategy. I think of it as kind of a hybrid strategy. So then what are the pros and cons of these two approaches of reinvesting all that income or using it to help provide some of the cash flow? Sure. So if you think about the pure total return strategy, the the beauty of that is that you are periodically reviewing your portfolio's asset allocation, getting it back in line, and using the selling proceeds to fund your cash flows on an ongoing basis. The downside is that there may be years when there's nothing to rebalance, right? right? right. So think about 2022. There was not a great source of rebalancing proceeds in most of our portfolios. So there will be those dry years. And then the other downside of that strategy is that your um, 
portfolio is not supplying you any income distributions whatsoever. You have to go in and do the work to, mm-hmm. to get the cash flows out of the portfolio. So those are the major pros and cons of the, the pure total return strategy. In terms of the hybrid strategy, I think there's a lot to like about it. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to retirees using this bucket approach, they often tell me that they're using some version of that approach um, where you are getting that source of cash flows on an ongoing basis coming from the portfolio. So um, I don't know that there's a major downside. I suppose a big one would be if if, if you're automatically harvesting the income distributions, you're not putting money back to work in your portfolio in a year like 2022, when ideally you would be reinvesting your income distributions right back into the portfolio to put more money to work in a declining market. Now let's talk about um, you know dividend stocks as an option. You know we know that's a popular source of income, particularly among a lot of readers of you know your content at Morningstar.com. So how reasonable is it to be using dividends to supply your living expenses in retirement? I think it's perfectly reasonable. In fact, I I think it's fine if retirees want to nudge up the focus on income production within their portfolios. I've not really done that mm-hmm. when I've created the model portfolios, but I don't see there that there's anything wrong with some using like a Vanguard high dividend yield for their U.S. Mm -hmm. equity exposure, I would tend to want to augment that with a little bit of total stock market Mm -hmm. exposure because it's going to give you exposure to other parts of the market. But if retirees want to kind of dial up the dividend production, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I would also note that international dividend payers tend to have higher yields than U.S. today. So I wouldn't just focus on the U.S. component in terms of nudging up my dividend yield, I'd also look overseas. And then lastly, you know, we've talked a little bit about cash yields being very attractive. And, you know, we've also seen indications in the market that investors are actually increasing their cash holdings. So is that a defensible strategy today? Is there really going to, are you going to be able to generate enough enough cash for your income needs through an approach like this? Well, the risk is that current cash yields, as attractive as they are, may prove ephemeral, especially if we do head into a weakening economic environment. The Fed will probably step off the gas in terms of these interest rate increases and may even cut interest rates. Well, as a short-term investor, as a cash investor, that is not your friend, right? Right. You're having to put your money to work in uh, lower-yielding securities, typically. So even though it might provide some peace of mind to know that more of your cash flows are just coming from your cash yields today. Just know that the good times as that cash investors have may not last. And also bear in mind the role of inflation, which is the natural enemy of anything with a fixed payout attached to it. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for talking us through retirement income against today's backdrop. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, Susan and Christine. That's all for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Morningstar's YouTube channel to see new videos about market news, personal finance, and investment picks. Thanks to podcast producer Jake Wankerson, who puts the show together. I'm Ruth Saldana, an editorial manager at Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in to Investing Insights. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. 
Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. While this guest may license or offer products and services of Morningstar and its affiliates, unless otherwise stated, he or she is not affiliated with Morningstar and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.